0: Hello, and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. This week, Denise and I decided to read the same book together, and we're going to share some of the findings from that book with you all. It's called, Who Are You? by Carolyn Mace. And so the topic for today's show is on archetypes. What is your primary archetype, and how can you use the information from your archetype to help you grow in your spiritual development? Denise, do you want to start off with like a good definition that Carolyn gives from her book on what an archetype is?
1: Yes, and what I love, love, love about this book is that you can, it will help you identify more clearly with the way you're navigating in the world, but also other people in your life. It's it's a great resource, and we're going to talk about a lot of different um, a lot of the different nuances of it. But Carolyn. Mace describes an archetype as the vocabulary of intuition, and the more familiar we are with them, the more clearly we'll resonate with our own intuition. Archetypes speak to us in a language of myths and symbols, perfectly suited to a society that's become fluent in high-tech code, instant messages, and Twitter speak. The only difference is that archetypes originate in our cosmic intelligence and not in our technical awareness. And she goes on to say, the language of archetypes is the universal language of the human soul, psychically uniting us all through what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. So really, really interesting stuff.
0: It really is. And she points out in her book that we've been doing archetypal power readings our whole lives. She says, whenever you sit down at an airport or just at a park and you people watch, you're doing archetypal readings. And she, you know when she said that, I thought, I wonder if that's true. But she said, as people walk by, you're, you're saying that's a perfect mother, that's an athlete, and that's an archetypal reading. I found that really interesting, and, and she says that it it connects us, it helps us to link in with other people and figure people out. And sometimes if we're
1: struggling, it may be that we're not honoring our archetype, which I thought was interesting as well. Or if someone we meet someone and they don't settle right with us, are we picking up on that that archetype doesn't resonate with us or that the person isn't being true to their archetype? It, there's, it,
0: it's a lot to think about.
1: It well, really she is. does
0: touch upon that. She says that in some ways, we're limited by our archetype. Right. That we can only excel at what we are and not at what we would like to be. She
1: brings into um, clarity, I guess would be the best word, that you identify your archetypes in your stories, your patterns, your fears, your talents, all the things that are constant in your nature. And she talks also about sacred contracts that you know that this is what governs your relationship to your personal power and to spiritual power and are expressed through every aspect of your life. So these patterns might be imprinted in us from birth, maybe even in the, in the womb. So then you wonder, you know that whole nature nurture controversy which seems to apply to everything in life. But truly do we come in with these contracts or do we are they developed? I think it's a combination of both.
0: Yeah, I, I do too. She thinks that we come in with them. She thinks that we've contracted with these archetypes for yes. spiritual lessons. And so I think that's why she stresses, you know, you cannot change your archetype, but you can transform it. Right. So there's a shadow side to every archetype and a positive side. And I think, you know, Denise, as teachers, I'm sure you have, I've seen this a lot with students I, had, I remember I had one student, he, he was the class clown, but a true class clown. Like, you know how some class clowns are just annoying? Mm-hmm. He was actually hilarious and funny and livened up the whole class. And when I had them work on a goal book for their narrative paper assignment, he had all these goals about being an accountant. Wow. And I could not see him sitting in a cubicle from eight to six crunching numbers. I just couldn't see it. I don't I don't think it was his archetype. His archetype was clearly the artist, the creative archetype, because he was a true performer. And I've always wondered, you know, what happened to him? Like, did he go ahead and become an accountant? Or will I see him at the comedy store one day? So sometimes we might have goals, and they're just not working out in our lives. And it could be that we're dealing with the shadow side of our archetype, or it could be that we're trying to be someone who we intrinsically are not. It's just not who we are.
1: But either way, acknowledging and gaining awareness of what your archetypal patterns are or your disposition is allows you to align more fully with the work you came here to do or the person you came here to be. And and I think anything we can do as empaths to have more self-realization, to have more understanding of who we are and how we navigate in this world is very, very, very empowering because we don't make excuses or hide or try to make it better in the world for everyone else except ourselves. So I do see this as an important topic for, for all of us as empaths.
0: I do too. Now, she says that your archetype will communicate psychically with you through hunches, intuition, gut instincts, chills running up your spine, and other physical sensations. So, for example, the artist archetype might get chills when he sees a beautiful sunset or dreams of photographing it. Or the athlete might feel this thrill when she signs up for a marathon. So, you have to pay attention to your inner feelings about situations and sights and all of your senses to really understand what your archetype is and how it's talking to you. And this reminded me of a story I read years ago. Madeline Langle published kind of like a memoir of her marriage life, and she's the one who wrote A Wrinkle in Time. And there's this one story that has always stayed with me. It was her 40th birthday. And she woke up and was feeling very melodramatic, you know, as you do on a 40th birthday. And she was so depressed that she hadn't been published yet. And so she put this cloth over her typewriter and was just like, I'm done. That's, I'm ending that chapter in my life. It's not going to happen. I'm walking away from it. And as she walks out of her bedroom and goes down the stairs to her family, like waiting to celebrate her birthday, she's narrating the scene in her head. And she's thinking like she dramatically covers the typewriter with a black cloth and she goes downstairs to grieve the end of her write. And as she's doing this, she's realizing, oh, I'm a writer. And whether I'm published or not, I'm always going to write. And so sometimes when we don't know, what the hell am I supposed to be doing with my life right now? You can pay attention to the things that you naturally always do. And so she finally embraced her artist archetype and that's when she got The Wrinkle in Time published.
1: I love that story because it's, a, it's hope. It's hope don't give up on who you really are and what you want to do. When you were reading some of these, did some of them really, really resonate with you? And you could picture it in yourself. You could picture it in people you love and know. And some of them that I read were so far away from who I am and the way I look at life. I almost wanted to tip my head like a big Labrador Retriever. Like, you know how they'll tip their head and look at you like, huh, what are you talking about? I, I, it's so foreign to me. And it, yes. it's that looking at and saying, this is their reality. This is what, how they're wired. And that's what makes us so beautiful is that we are so unique and we're going to come from this perspective. I think the one I had a hard time with, I have to be honest, was fashionista. I'm not. There, I am not even in any way, shape or form close. But as I read through the description, I thought of people I know who do embody that archetype. And it really gave me a perspective of how it must be to look at the world through their eyes.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think exploring archetypes can be so good for the empath, because we get a lot of emails saying, how do I discern my emotions from others that I'm picking up on? And I think if you can learn to see people through their primary archetype, it'll help you recognize who and what you're picking up on in your own energy.
1: So uh, when she breaks down each of these, she talks about uh, the male counterpart. And at first I thought, well, is that something that, that seems a little sexist. Do we really want to say that? But I think that you can read this as the male counterpart. You can read this as the male energy. You can read that as however you want to do it. I don't think it was coming from a place of, I think it was more her way of saying this applies to everyone.
0: Right. I do too. Yeah, because she says in there that your primary archetype influences all of your decisions. Mm -hmm. It'll influence the career you choose, the romantic partner you're drawn to, but also how you look, what you wear and choose to buy. And so I don't think this is a masculine feminine thing. I think this is a human thing. And once you understand your archetype, you'll start to understand all the choices and decisions you've made and are continuing to make. So for example, if you think of the athlete, you'll get a picture of that archetype in your head and you'll picture someone, you know, wearing athletic shorts and a tank top with sneakers on. So everything about our archetype influences our choices. Now there are infinite archetypes. There are ancient archetypes like mother, father, hero, the teacher, guide, healer, and there are new archetypes that are coming up all the time. Like uh, she mentions the computer geek or the hacker. I don't like the term computer geek personally, but those were the two examples she gave of new archetypes. We're going to talk about the 10 primary archetypes she mentions in her book. And the first one she starts talking about is the advocate. Their purpose is to find a cause that engages their strength and talent rather than their anger or personal agenda. Advocates are here to learn that just because you can't do everything shouldn't stop you from doing something. She says their defining grace is hope, and their shadow is believing that everyone must appreciate the value of their work or cause and believe that their cause is more important than others. Advocates are dedicated to social, political, and environmental transformation. They are committed to humanitarian causes and speak for those who can't. They tend to gain power when they are clear as to their motivations and can be patient, especially with people who have different views and opinions. They also gain power when they learn to work as a team and can stay hopeful. So I really like that. She talks in each of these chapters about how these advocate uh, uh, sorry, about how each of these archetypes can gain power and what actions and decisions cause them to lose power. Mm -hmm. Because she says in here, Denise, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this. She says, everything about your life is a power negotiation.
1: It's interesting you bring that up because that's a theme throughout the book is that power can get a very negative connotation. And it's seen as aggressive or it's seen as trying to, but it can very, very much be about that alignment with yourself and your own inner power and strength. It's interesting when you read through each chapter, that was a beautiful overview of what an advocate is like. And then she'll go into more detail about the nuances of, are you a hobby advocate? Are you devoted? Are you compulsive? So there's, as as with anything, there's a spectrum. So you may really align with this and say, oh my God, that's me. That's, this is what I care about. This is why I'm here on the earth is to to advocate for these changes that need to happen. And similar to what you said a few minutes ago, you're going to have a reaction to that physically, mentally, or spiritually that you know you can't not do it in order to feel fulfilled. And that is a sense of power.
0: Exactly, it is. And I have the same issue with that word power. Like I don't really think about power in my daily life. And yet I, I think she has a point I remember when I was a young woman, I I just remember people looking at me and hearing my voice and I could see them sizing me up Mm -hmm. and I could see them putting me in a box and slapping a label on it that didn't fit who I was. And it always bothered me that people would think, oh, young girl, tiny voice, I can... I can overpower her with this negotiation whatever it might be if I was trying to return something or buy a car and I always resented that
1: and rightfully so
0: Yeah I don't I don't like that I don't I don't think I don't think we can do that I don't think we can ever look at someone and just size them up which that's one thing I did have a little issue with when she talked about people watching and and archetyping them I guess we do it but uh, I don't like I don't like that idea, but I
1: don't. I don't think it's coming across as a judgmental thing. It's no, more, I agree. Yeah, and it's more about the way I, I interpreted it was trusting your intuition to align with that energy someone's sending out, and that it, it may. And there are whether we like it or not, there are stereotypes. There are people that I mean, the, the high school jock—that is such a stereotype, but it's it's true. <laughs> I mean, the intellectual. It's true, and it's not. It's not good or bad. It's just what it is. People have strengths and weaknesses, and that was one of the things I always, always, always said when I was uh, teaching special services all those years. I would always say to all my classes, "We all have strengths and weaknesses," and I think that that's a really important thing to tell anyone, and it's true. So you may be an intellectual athlete, and you have the best of both worlds. You may be well, anyway, you could combine any of these together and that's what we do is we have one that's our primary or one or two that are our primary ways of looking at the world, but we, we do blend in those energies of the other archetypes into the way we function.
0: Well, she says, if we continue with advocates, she says that they lose power when they turn their cause into a mission. Mm -hmm. when they're unrealistic, when they crave recognition, and when they choose to be competitive. So that's interesting to look at ways that each of these archetypes can grow their archetype and strengthen it and ways that they can lessen it and move into the shadow side of that archetype. And some of the examples she uses um, are like Aaron Brockovich or Karen Silkwood or Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr. She even brings up Skeeter from the book The Help. Who's an advocate? So it's kind of interesting if you think of these archetypes and then try to think about famous advocates that you know of or even advocates in your own life or if you are one.
1: The lifestyle challenge for advocates is the question how will a commitment to a cause change my lifestyle? And that's the, the challenge because it really does. Are you, is this a hobby? Is this something that you just feel passionate about and you're going to step up or is this something you're going to devout, devote most of your energy or your career or your entire lifestyle to
0: that can feel daunting i don't have yes. the kid archetype in my dna so i had I, I just had a hard time resonating with that because that question of you know will you devote your whole life to this cause i find that that is that's a big question
1: and I think that's why it's helpful to have those, is this a hobby, is this a devoted, is this, I mean, there have been issues throughout my life that I have felt very, very devoted about environmentally, often is, is the one that I, I stick with, but have I devoted my entire uh, energy and life to it? No. Do I support it? Yes. So I would say I had maybe some of those characteristics.
0: Well, you definitely do speak for those who can't speak for themselves. So I I agree. I saw saw a lot of you in that archetype. Oh, well, thank you. Um,
1: And another thing is none of these are better or worse than any of the other ones. And just because you say, oh, that's such a good one, that one really isn't. And I wasn't, if someone's a fashionista, God love you, I am impressed as hell because I just don't, I'm not wired that way. But it fascinates me when people can pull things together and they have that sense and that grace and that ease. So it does, as she said throughout the book, who you are doesn't make you more or less. It's just the way you came and the work you came here to do. Now, I saw a lot of people I know in this next one of the artist creative. And this is the natural performer, storyteller. And they're here to cultivate the imagination and explore new forms of creative expression. A lot of folks that may have this archetype have to try to overcome the fear of not being an original. And or to not to diminish or ignore their talent, but instead develop that unique artistic gifts that they came with. The defining grace is creativity, and this may show up with with arts, with performance, with music, with uh, with words, with design. It, it can be, but just that that if your life is that essence of creativity, there's a good chance that this is an archetype you're going to align with. The shadow work is often about a fear of being ordinary or unacknowledged for your artistic gifts, or maybe even a little resentful that you choose not to develop your inner artist and creative. This can be for some about balancing masculine and feminine energies. Sometimes the myth that people with this archetype will buy into is, I'll never be able to support myself if I pursue a career in the arts. Artist creatives are temperamental or eccentric or lead counterculture lives. I'll have to struggle with substance abuse if I live a, a creative life. But a beautiful part for this archetype is that ability to see beauty everywhere, to come in live in front of an audience, to play music and appreciate it or uh, dream of, of seeing your name on a bestseller list. There's a drive that comes with this for a lot of people that helps them to to pursue the energies that that are supportive. and wanting to really commit wholeheartedly to realizing what those creative dreams may be. Uh, A big challenge can be, can I develop my talent and express myself or will fear of failure or humiliation hold me back? And that one really hit me because I do see so many creatives that, well, who wants to listen to me? Who wants to read my book? Who wants to hear my song? Who wants to see my art? And I think that that can be incredibly, incredibly debilitating for people that have the artist creative archetype.
0: I do too. You know, my, my daughter Tori and my daughter Chloe are very, very artistic. And Tori had a whole Instagram art page, and she was creating videos of showing how she created her work. And it's, she's very talented. But she came to me one day, a couple of summers ago, and she was like, I don't want to do it anymore. And I said, why? And she said, well, because I come up with these wonderful ideas in my head. And when I try to put them on paper, they just look like everyone else's. It's like I'm just copying what I see in art books or Pinterest. And so I bought her a book called Steal Like an Artist, And the whole book is about how that's the only way you learn is to copy and mimic. In the beginning, obviously, we're not talking plagiarism here, but just as you're learning. And I told her how F. Scott Fitzgerald, the way he taught himself to write is he would take his favorite author's books and he would copy them in his own hand into notebooks, word by word by word. Because he was hoping that he would understand the method of their talent. And he does say in his journals or letters, I think, that the only time he got successful was when he stopped doing that and did his own original work. But he also admits that he couldn't have gotten to that point if he hadn't spent those years actually copying those novels you know, so that he could understand how they wrote. So I think the artist is always going to struggle with that question, am I original? Do I have anything unique to offer? But I think what they need to understand is it's in copying the masters in the beginning that you learn how what flows through your hand or out of your mouth if you're a singer or an actor is going to come out of you in a way that is uniquely different to everyone else. So there comes a time when you do own your own originality.
1: And that's what we keep telling people over and over, whether it's creativity, it's, it's mediumship, it's being an intuitive, it's being, it doesn't matter, fill in the blank. If you're coming from your own truth, it can't be replicated.
0: It cannot. Yeah, because we're all unique. Right. So she says that artists gain power by being around other creatives, like other creative people, and working on developing their talents, experimenting with different mediums, but also trusting their instincts and strengthening their intuition, which I thought was really interesting that she would connect intuition to the creative source, because I've always thought that was true.
1: Me too. I think there's a very strong correlation.
0: Yeah, I think that inspiration, you know, it's so funny that all those words begin with I-N-N. You know, inspiration, intuition, insight. We have to go within. She also says that artists gain power when they plug into the culture around them. And that I also think is so true. Even if you're working on writing or painting something, if you just go to a great concert or go sit in the audience of a beautiful play, it will inspire you and, and help awaken your imagination. And she also says it's so important for an artist to maintain a positive outlook. And she also said, and this was something I had a hard time with, is that artists lose power when they compare themselves to others, when they give in to mood swings. And Denise, I had a hard time with that because when I want to write or draw, I will write or draw. When I don't feel like writing or drawing, I don't do it. And she's saying here, like, you can't give in to that. If you're oh. a writer, you got to write. If you're a painter, you got to paint. And I, I have a hard time with that. When I'm not feeling it, it just doesn't flow. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Do you think they sh- like artists should push through? I guess we should. I don't know.
1: I don't know. <laughs> See, I'm going to ride the middle rail on it. I think it depends on the situation. It depends. If, are you... Using it as an excuse not to complete a project? Are you procrastinating out of fear? Are you, I mean, that's different than, damn, I just don't feel like sitting there and doing that right now. I need to go take a walk or get a break or go see a show and and really recharge my battery a little bit.
0: What I do when, when I'm not in the mood to do art, but I feel like I should, I'll work on background stuff. So I might edit an article I've been working on, or I might you know, just sketch ideas I've been thinking of or just journal. So I kind of work around it. But she says that artists also lose power when they expect perfection. I think that's true of all of us, whatever your archetype. Um, When they wallow in regret or when they equate success with financial success. And that's so true. When does an artist call themselves an artist? Is it only when they're in a gallery, on a stage or in a published page? Or are you always an artist?
1: But so many people that are beyond gifted and aligned with their their inner talent, their inner knowing, their creativity have been dissuaded from following that path because of maybe a guidance counselor or a parent that's afraid or people saying you'll never make it. You, You can't make a living doing that. How will you feed yourself? So they abandon that part of themselves to follow the norm or follow the expectations. And that has always, always troubled me.
0: Yeah, me too. One thing I do is I just walk into a bookstore and I just look at all those books on the shelves and I think they did it. You know? See so I
1: thought of you a lot with this one. I feel like this this aligns with you. This yeah, type.
0: I, I definitely resonated with this one. And I think that a lot of the a lot of the people who are uh, committed to those ideas that an artist can't make a living, or possibly the ones who gave up too soon. There's a there's a lovely quote by a writer, and I'm forgetting her name right now. I think it's Anita Shreve, who said, the only difference between a published writer and an unpublished writer is the published writer never gave up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for any artist. And in her book, Carolyn Mays talks about a man who wanted to be a painter and he gave up too soon and he ended up being a house painter and she said but do you see he's still fulfilling his archetype because even though he's painting houses he's still painting and she's hoping that he will heal his his you know false beliefs that he can't do this and and go back into his primary archetype so the athlete is the next one and very very different from the artist The athlete's purpose is to experiment life through the power and stamina of their body. Their challenge is to learn how to recognize the limits of their body and their inner shadow belief is that physical strength is sufficient to attain all goals. Some of the attributes of an athlete include they take great care of their bodies. They enjoy physical challenges. They're super competitive, but they play fair. And they also tend to include things like massages and other body therapies into their routine and tend to have really good nutrition. Their challenge is to answer the question Who am I other than an athlete? She recommends that people who have this archetype should cross train, stay current with different fitness techniques, pace themselves, and socialize with other athletes. And she says they gain power by sticking to a routine, encouraging others, being an example or mentor, and expanding their mind as well as their body. But she says athletes can lose power when they push their bodies too far, when they believe exercise is the only preventative medicine they need, and when they choose to be a bad sport. And so I think this
1: one is a, maybe one of the more challenging archetypes age because they may have been the top athlete all sports they've devoted their life and they're still active and involved but maybe not able to push their bodies to the level that they once could and I think being kind and gentle with yourself as you evolve into a new stage of your life if this is your archetype would be really really important.
0: I agree and kind of disagree in a way because there's so much out there right now for the athlete and I only know this because I have a very good friend who is completely this archetype and she belongs to a crossfit group she belongs to a runners group her whole life is around being an athlete she's just hired a trainer to prepare herself for the ironman competition and her whole social life except for me, cause this is not my archetype <laughs> is surrounded around this idea of herself as an athlete. And it is, it's been fascinating just being her friend and, and watching her successes. You know, I have literally watched her take a giant tire truck and push it down a road and then watched as she celebrated after she learned to push that tire truck up a hill, like things I, you know, I, Part of me is like, why do you want to do that? But it makes her so happy. And so I think that there are ways today where we can move beyond that. You know, like what was that movie with Dennis Quaid? That was the saddest movie. Do you remember when he was like the star athlete in high school and college? And then I think he became like an insurance salesman. I think Jessica Lange plays his wife. And the whole movie is about how his life is so sad because he peaked in college.
1: Right. And he didn't know who he was other than being an athlete.
0: Yes. And so I definitely agree with what you're saying based on that. But I I just think in today's society, there are a lot of new wonderful outlets for the lifelong athlete.
1: It also allows you a quality of life that a lot of people don't experience because of that endurance and stamina.
0: Yeah, that's very, very true. And I think it's so good because athletes that I have known, they just, they know how to set goals. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to be successful in other areas of their life because they've seen themselves set a goal. I'm going to lift this much in weights, or I'm going to get my yoga teacher training, or I'm going to complete this 5k, and then this 10k, and then this marathon, and then this triathlon. And so they have success in setting these goals in that area of their life. And then they tend to apply those same single-minded focus focus that they needed to achieve that goal into other areas of their life with tremendous success.
1: Exactly. The next one I think a lot of us as empaths may uh, relate to is the caregiver archetype. And this is often the nurturer, the mother, the lover, the sister, the teacher, the rescuer. And this is the people who feel like they came here to take care of people in ways they may not be in able to take care of themselves. There's often a fear of being thought of as being selfish and kind of learning when to help and when not to. It's, I think, a struggle for some not to be seen as selfish, but also realizing that people will be able to make it without them intervening all the time. I'm I'm saying this with kind of tongue-in-cheek because I relate a lot to this archetype. This is not being able to turn people down who need help. It's the family caregiver. You may choose a caregiving occupation, see helping others as a calling, very much about compassion and generosity. But I think the real challenge with this archetype is learning to care enough about yourself to find find out who you really are. So not to care for everyone else to the exclusion of taking care of you too.
0: Yeah. And I found it fascinating because she talks about how if this is your primary archetype, a part of you has to just surrender to that and accept that this is who you are. Because when you caretake out of resentment, that's when she says health issues start or depression pops up. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to recognize that this is who I am. I am a caregiver and once you surrender to that, then you can start choosing to be very discerning in who you choose to offer your beautiful heart to. Right. And I think but- that's the challenge. She says their shadow work is feeling, un, uh, feeling resentful for the care they're giving or feeling uncared for in return. And I think that's a really important aspect that the caregiver needs to work on. You know, am I giving this care because I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I don't? Or am I giving this care because I feel like I have to? And I also think it's hard because most caregivers, like you said, will choose a caregiving career. Right. So you'll find them as teachers or nurses, social workers, doctors, massage therapists, healers, etc. And so when your job is to care give and then you come home and your job is to care give, that's a lot of giving.
1: See, now this is the one where when I was reading through all of these and reading through the book, is so do you, I can see where you would come with a natural disposition to be a caring, a caregiver personality type, to, to have this archetype. But then when all the research, all the shows we've done, all the, the reading we've done on being empaths and and that was our role as children was to, to, we were kind of groomed for that as well. So that's where I had that that balance of the nature nurture stuff. Did we come this way naturally or or was part of it as empathic people, we fell into that role in our family of origin? There's probably no way of knowing, but
0: but why would you fall into that role? Like, for example, I'm the youngest in my family by quite a bit. my My older sister' is ten years older, and my my next sister is almost seven years older. And so I needed a lot of, you know, help as a little kid, right? And my older sister was like, you're on your own, kid. You know, like I would ask her, can you drive me to the middle school dance? And she'd be like, no. But my middle sister would always step in and do that. She would play with me when I got bored or lonely. She drove me everywhere. I mean, she was like a second mother to me. So if, the, if my family groomed her for that, why would she step into that role and not my older sister?
1: Uh, and you have to wonder, is there birth order?
0: Yeah, yeah, it could be. Or it could be, my my sister Courtney is just the most compassionate uh, person I've ever met uh, it, next to you. And <laughs>
1: I, I, I'm not in your sister's category, but thank you. But yes, That you was are. kind.
0: <laughs> and I think that's just how she came to this earth, and I think that's just how you came to this earth. And so I think that's what Carolyn is talking about in terms of just surrendering to it. You know, like if you were driving to work and you were almost going to be late if you got one more red light and yet you saw a dog stranded on the side of the road, you would stop. I'd have to. I would too. I agree. But there are some people who would be like, oh, well, and just say a prayer or keep on keeping on, which is fine. No judgment. But the caregiver has to just accept this is who I am. I have to stop. She does say that the shadow archetype of the caregiver is the enabler, Mm -hmm. which is why it is so important to learn who you should help and who you should not help. And she also says that caregivers gain power when they learn to take care of themselves, when they learn to say no when needed, and when they learn how to set healthy boundaries but they lose power when they let fear of what others think control their choices, when they care for others as a means of gaining love or other rewards and when they refuse to focus on themselves.
1: And it seems like, you know, the whole enabler is just be cautious of who you choose as a life partner or choose as friends in your life. Or is it a balanced relationship with reciprocity or Are you trying to make it all okay for someone else?
0: Yeah. Do you remember that story she tells in the book about the caregiver who chooses the, I think she calls him a man-child archetype? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then the caregiver gets cancer and the man-child archetype husband doesn't want to take care of her. So it it can be really difficult if you are a caregiver and you choose someone who wants to be taken care of, well, who's going to take care of you when you need it? Right. So for any young people out there listening, I think it's important to recognize your archetype and, you know, choose wisely. Mm -hmm. So the next one she talks about is the fashionista, which is the person who is here to pursue a life that's not about appearance or, you know, shallowness, but about self-expression. And so their challenge is to develop their inner qualities in tandem with expressions of their external beauty. And they're here to discover how painful it is to be judged for the external rather than for the quality of the person you already are. Their defining grace is their exuberance. And their inner shadow is the ugly duckling who never becomes the swan. So... There's a lot of myths around this archetype, like clothes are everything, or, you know, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression, the whole rags to Richard's thing. And Cinderella, of course, would be probably the, the key archetype for this fashionista persona. You love fashion. If you have this archetype, you tend to always look great. You use fashion as a way to develop self-esteem and to truly express yourself And you love to help non fashionistas find their personal style. And I think fashionistas also tend to have beautiful homes as well. You know, those people Mm -hmm. who just know how to decorate or put together a beautiful dinner party or just make everyone feel at home. She says their lifestyle challenge is to answer the question how do I use fashion? How do I fashion a lifestyle that reflects who I am and empowers me as a person? So overall, Denise, I found it interesting that she chose this as an archetype at all. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find that interesting?
1: I did, because it doesn't, it's, uh, I, I feel like out of all of them, this is a very unique, you're not going to, this is a unique one. This isn't, and I'm not talking about people that have to have the latest, oh, the colors this year are mauve and, and plum, so I have to go and change my entire wardrobe for that. I'm talking about the people that always have that innate sense of style. They're unique. They're they just present with this sense of self, with the way they they physically uh, clothe their body or move. It just it's a different it's a different energy.
0: I think what she's really getting at here is that the fashionista archetype is here to balance both what's on the outside with what's on the inside. Yes. And so in that way, I do think it's more of a universal archetype because in in many ways, we're all trying to do that. And she says that often, you know, fashionistas, they need to stop comparing themselves to others. They need to stop going after this perfect look, this beauty ideal. um, And they need to understand that they can use their archetype to help others. So she says that they gain power, by giving themselves free reign to try new styles, by working on highlighting your best assets, staying in shape, um, living in the present moment, I guess because they tend to compare a lot, but they lose power when they rely on emotional shopping, when they seek others' approval, when they compare themselves to others, when they listen too strongly to their inner critic, and when they ignore their inner power gauge. So she says fashionistas are automatically attracted to what empowers you. So pay attention.
1: And I love that she mentions about they want to help other people find their own personal style. I've talked to different people over the years that, that do have this archetype, but they also they see it as a gift to help other people find their signature, to find their look, to find their their style. And there is, there's a, that's a true art form, especially for those of us that don't have it. It's, it's almost like a superpower.
0: Oh, I agree. I had a friend who said to me once, I only shop off the mannequin because I can't visualize clothes together. I cannot put them together. And I totally understand what she means because I don't have this archetype either. I tend to, I do care what I look like, but I tend to dress more for the day rather than how i look Mm -hmm. so if i know i'm going to see a lot of people i'll pay attention to what i put on but if i'm staying home i'm gonna dress comfy i don't look put together all the time
1: i don't have that problem myself of looking put together all the time (laughs) <laughs> but I respect anyone who does. It, it, it's actually quite fast. And this goes back to what I said about not being able to relate to certain archetypes because I find it, it brings out a curiosity to think, wow, that really, as much as I may be wired this way, this person is wired that way, this third person is wired. It just makes it so much more fun to think about how someone else might be looking at like seeing, it's like re- remote viewing, seeing the world through their eyes.
0: Yes, and it helps us to understand different people's motivations.
1: Yes. Yeah, and it's not right or wrong.
0: Nope. So, so the next one she talks about is the intellectual.
1: Yes. And, and this is, uh, I know quite a few people in this category, and I, I, I love this archetype. Um, these are very professional thinking people. They, they go after knowledge for the sake of knowledge and discovering the truth in, in all of its expressions very open to new ideas. Uh, They are able to, and often will strive to discern the difference between reason and truth. Their defining grace, uh, according to Carolyn, is wisdom. Sometimes a shadow might be of using these intellectual skills to play mind games or compromise the truth. Um, Having a reason for logic behind everything these are the people that just love learning. They often will lead with their head before their heart. They'll also look closely and consider all the options before acting. Uh, They'll cultivate wisdom to improve life for themselves. It can be a real challenge though not to overthink for, for people with this archetype. And this goes back to those folks that may be so linear sequential, they may be so A leads to B. There's a beauty in that and it helps organize life in a way that some of the other archetypes aren't able to do.
0: I have a little bit of this archetype in me. Me too. And I think it comes from, I don't know, I remember as a kid, like everyone hated school. I didn't love school. I hated recess and lunch. What I liked sitting in the classroom and the way I've explained it to people is the way my athlete archetypes have explained their love of sports to me is that school is the only time that life felt fair to me and kind of easy. Like if you just study and listen and take notes and read your notes, you're going to do well you know and like my athlete archetypes have said they love sports because it's the only time life makes sense for them you kick the ball it hits the goal you win mm-hmm. but the the three myths of the intellectual she mentions i really resonated with two of them one is if i'm a good person nothing bad will happen to me i totally believed that for years there's a logical reason for everything Well, as an intuitive, I've never believed that. (laughs) But the third one I have, I'm entitled to have good things happen to me because I've paid my dues. That might be the Catholic in me, you know, but I've always Mm -hmm. felt like if I prime the pump and I do good things like karma, it'll come back to you.
1: Not always true. See, this, this may be one of the archetypes that struggles a bit with trusting their intuition. Yeah. And they may access that in a different way than, than you and I do. They may figure out how to fix the machine or, or um, you know twist the design on the, on the CAD drawing to make it work more viable as a, a product or they're, they're still tapping into that intuition but they may use it in a more practical because sometimes uh, affect and, and reading people's emotions might not be this, this archetype's um, primary way of looking at life.
0: Well, and look at your own language to help discover your archetype. Like the intellect archetype will often say, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas the artist or the fashionista might say, I see. And the caregiver might say, I feel. But the intellectual archetype needs to work on getting outside of their head and stop overthinking things. And she says that their shadow work is they're really good at playing mind games. Mm -hmm. But she does say that they gain power when they stay intellectually active. So they should attend seminars or learn something new, keep up on current events. They need to stay engaged with life and really fuel their passion for knowledge. Connect with people who are also intellectual and interested in thinking and talking. Avoid boredom avoid distractions, and feed their mind with nourishing input.
1: I think those are all so, so, so important for this archetype because uh, I I always use the analogy of when I'm doing readings and I get a flash of a a Border Collie, they're the most intelligent dog, but if you don't keep them busy, they get into things. That's just, that's part of the breed if if you know Border Collies. But when I get a flash of that in a reading, it usually means that the person I'm talking to is very bright, or the person that we're connecting with in spirit is very bright, and they have that kind of energy. Is boredom is, is a death sentence. Not being intellectually stimulated is a death sentence. They need that that const not constant, but they need to be challenged intellectually in order to really live up to their potential of this energy.
0: This is one of the reasons why I have such a hard time with small talk. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I'll have a whole conversation with someone, and I'll walk away thinking we didn't really say anything, you know? And there's very few people I know who want to talk about the deep stuff I want to talk about. Most people like to stay, you know, surfacy and I don't mean that in a shallow way.
1: No, but it's more comfortable.
0: Right. Right. And so I do think it's important for the intellectual archetype to seek out people who aren't afraid to go into the deep end of the ocean and dive into topics that really expand and explore the mind. Mm -hmm. So the next one she talks about is the queen or the executive. And she uses Miranda Priestly from that movie that's based on Anna Wintour as an example. So this is someone who is kind of regal or royal. They're like the CEO or the queen. Their life journey is to learn how to be responsible for the well-being of others, but their challenge is to identify the cause or causes in which it's worth investing your power and influence. They're here to learn how to differentiate between authentic power and illusionary power. Their grace is generosity, but their shadow is compromising your integrity to maintain your throne. Oh. Yeah. So they tend to take charge of situations, they're natural leaders, they command center stage without even trying, they enjoy using their influence to empower others, and they do look their best at all times. One of their biggest challenges is learning how to share power, especially in intimate relationships. I don't know that we have a lot of queens listening to this show. I can't... (laughs) Well, I can't picture this archetype being very empathic.
1: Um, well, in, unless they're a, 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 a gentle and... I don't know.
0: <laughs> I have no words for that one. Well, I think it's important for empaths to understand this archetype because I do think we encounter a lot of queens. Okay.
1: I, I'll go with that.
0: Or kings because, or executives. She uses different words for them.
1: But if you so, do align with this and you are an empath... I think that the defining thing is they can be very generous. They can want to help empower other people. They'll they'll arrange, like I'm, I'm thinking of, of a person that has this, this energy who is in a managerial position and her goal is to empower those people who work under her to step into their full potential. See, I think that would be a really positive uh, way of looking at this archetype and, and of potentially being an empath while you're doing it.
0: I agree because I think the struggle for all women is to learn to be this archetype without those labels of ruthless or power hungry or, you know, so often when women rise to power, they're, they're thrown so much crap. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think you know, times are changing and when we are shifting that. And so I do think there's a lot of positive aspects of this archetype. But I also believe that culturally women often learn that this archetype is more negative than positive. And that's, that's what I have seen shift in the last few years and it makes me very happy and hopeful. So she's, she says their lifestyle challenge is really all about power, understanding your power, understanding how to share your power, understanding what to do with your power. I mean, haven't you met people like that? They just walk into a room, and they just command it right away. Mm-hmm. Feel it in their aura. That's a gift. And yes. yet, if it's abused, not it can not be a overpowering. Can yeah, yeah. So she says that um, the queen tends to make things happen. If anyone's been on like a PTA type thing, you know that type of you know they just can get shit done. <laughs> it's wonderful to watch. Um, they tend to be very direct in their dealings with others. And they tend to pour their energy into worthwhile causes like the advocate. But they do tend to lead those, those causes. They, they enjoy using their influence to make a difference in people's lives. They work hard. They naturally end up in positions of power and authority, even when they don't actively seek them they can come off as a little intimidating and they tend to have demanding jobs that often might put them in the public eye. So they're definitely the person in charge no matter where they end up. She says that they they should try being a mentor as much as a leader so that they can learn to share power um, and that really their biggest struggle is learning how to be this powerful person, but still share vulnerability in an intimate relationship. And she says that they gain power when they cultivate their self-esteem, when they invest their power in a worthwhile endeavor, when they form intimate relationships that are mutually supportive, and when they learn to put their integrity above all else. They also gain power when they practice exercising humility and when they're generous but they lose power when they pursue this illusion of power and leadership. They lose power when they misuse their ability to lead. They also lose power when they gossip or when they forget that power can be an aphrodisiac. And she also says they lose power when they, when they indulge in power plays. I guess kind of like the mind uh, games of the intellect in a way.
1: Mm-hmm. The next archetype is the rebel. And this is the maverick. This is the feminist. This is the person who wants to break through barriers and you know, fight for, for fundamental liberties of the human spirit. It's about finding your own personal voice and form of expression. Uh, sometimes people with this archetype may have, uh, get into power struggles of uh, ex- expressing their the authority in life. Justice is a very defining characteristic for these folks. Shadow work might fall under confronting an ego motivated by personal agenda to get attention. These are the people that speak out against discrimination and oppression. They challenge injustice. They might present with, with very bold and daring uh, phys, uh, clothing styles or, or you know that energy. They do things very non-traditionally. They take the road less traveled they introduce the radical new ideas into culture. So and a, a challenge for for this archetype is to not let the rebel in you control your emotional nature. And I think that that this is a a lot of us as empaths may have some of these characteristics in that we have a hard time following the norm. We have a hard time following that that traditional path. One of the things in this that really struck me was, you know, the that impulsiveness of making a choice and then realizing, oh, I should have thought this out a little better. It's notorious for that many years ago that, you know, already you've jumped off the, the cliff and you're halfway down and you're like, uh-oh, maybe this wasn't the best choice. But that's also very, very strong with this this personality type and this archetype.
0: Yeah, and she uses the myth of Prometheus as an example of this archetype, you know, because. He's the one who took fire from the gods and gave it to the humans. And Zeus was so mad and he punished Prometheus in a terrible way. And so she says that there's kind of this idea in the collective unconscious that rebels will pay a price. Mm-hmm. And so rebels have to learn to be true to themselves and to have the strength and conviction within themselves to leave the tribe and walk their own path.
1: This- and what I always get with this, with this archetype is you know that, that the little kids will cross their arms and say, you're not the boss of me. If, you, if that was you as a little person, you might really kind of have this archetype in your, in your genes. You, this might, you know, when you have a hard time following orders or you want to take a different spiritual path than what you were brought up with, or you just can't do it the way everybody else does it.
0: No, you always have to be a unique original. Right. She says that they gain power when they express themselves, when they make the most of their power, when they take risks and live boldly, when they champion the rights of others, and when they're fighting a big fight. But they lose power when they overreact or act impulsively, Mm -hmm. or when they lose their temper, or let desperation drive their actions. Or the whole rebel without a cause thing. You know, she says, if you're going to rebel just for the sake of rebelling, you're going to lose power. But they also lose energy when they ignore their inner rebel and they try to fit into society's parameters. And they also lose power when they throw a fit, when they don't get recognition, or when they fail to see how their rebellious acts affect others. And I do think that's an important one for this archetype to think about. How will my rebellion affect people around me and those I love?
1: It, this is the one where I think that there's a wide... It, it's similar to the advocate for me on this one, is that there's a wide range with, you know, there are people who are going to rebel, they're going to do things a little differently, they're going to have their... And then there are people that are full on. And sometimes, like, some people may hear this and say, oh, that's that, not to be gender biased, but that bad boy archetype, and, oh, I love a bad boy, I love a, you know, this type of woman or whatever... But that's, I don't feel like that's what this is talking about because th- th- that's not the true energy of... A, those might be the shadow side of that rebel archetype. But if you find yourself drawn to that energy, just be aware of, of where they may fall on, on the spectrum of the
0: archetype. Yeah, that's a good point because everything is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So the next one she discusses is one I think we can all resonate with on this show. It's the spiritual seeker sometimes called the mystic or the healer. And she says their journey is to become a spiritually congruent human being and their unique challenge is to create a life that blends their spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. Now, she says that their inner shadow, I don't agree with, Denise. She says the inner shadow of the spiritual seeker is this thought that the ordinary rules of life do not apply to me because I'm spiritual and therefore special. Nothing bad will happen to me because I'm on a spiritual path. I consider myself a spiritual seeker and I've never thought of myself as special or that the rules of life don't apply to me. I True. don't think you have either. No. I, to me, the inner shadow that I've had to do as a spiritual seeker is overcoming self-doubt and learning to accept myself in a society that says what I believe is weird, wrong, or bad.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's my shadow work as a spiritual seeker
1: right
0: so i don't know maybe maybe carolyn mace and i can agree to disagree (laughs) she says the behavior patterns and characteristics of the spiritual seeker include they tend to trust their intuition unconditionally they seek insight into who they really are they search for the true meaning and purpose of life they're committed to a path of spiritual evolution they give priority to spiritual understanding and they want more out of life than material success. Their challenge is learning to awaken and trust their intuitive intelligence. And I definitely think that is a true challenge of the spiritual uh, seeker.
1: And I like that she added a defining grace as humility. Yes. Because I think that that truly exemplifies someone that is uh, either identifies with being this archetype or also is hoping to bring those characteristics more into their life is coming from a, maybe that goes back to the shadow work is if you're coming from a place of humility, it's really hard to feel like you're, you're special or that you're exempt from bad things happening.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful journey to be on as a spiritual seeker. And I also think it's a frustrating one, Mm -hmm. you know, because I've, I, all I want to know is the answers to life. You know, Who created us? Why are we here? Is, why do we reincarnate? Why does karma not work out as simply as the old spiritual books say it does? I, I have so many questions and very few answers. I mean, there are answers, but none of them are super satisfying. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be um, an interesting journey. But it's, it's kind of nice that there aren't answers because then you always have something new to learn and seek. Right. So she says some of the patterns of the seeker are that they feel unsatisfied or are seeking more from their lives. They long for happiness and health. They tend to always be looking for a new life direction. They are always searching for insight into who they really are. They're intent on finding the meaning of life. They're curious about exploring dimensions beyond the material plane. They frequently read about spiritual or philosophical ideas. They tend to attend workshops on or seminars on consciousness and spiritual topics. And they've either begun a spiritual practice or are already working in that field. Um, but they can be very afraid to speak their truth. And I think that's just part of this path, don't you, is fearing what others will think.
1: I do. And... And it really, and I, we both obviously aligned with this one a lot because it's, it's just who we are and what we do with our lives and how we treat other people. And I think that this one to me feels a lot like that innate you came with it. And so many of us are waking up as empaths and as human beings on the planet of, of how can I live this life more spiritually and, and help, help raise the vibration.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and she says that the spiritual seeker needs to um, remove chaos and distractions from their life. They need to clear their head and tidy their work and living spaces. And she also says they need to work on not being hooked on self-help books. You know, like there's got to be a point where you stop seeking, not stop seeking, but that in addition to seeking, that you actually put what you've learned into practice.
1: Right. Similar to you can go to, remember when we went to the John Holland thing and he said, that's great. You're all meeting that. Go do the work. Don't right. just keep going from workshop to workshop to training to training. Go out and, and be of service with this.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Well said, Johnny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Our last ar- archetype is the visionary. And this is the entrepreneur, the innovator, the pioneer, the person trying to bring the future into the present. These Uh, archetypes will often remain committed to a vision long enough to see it come to fruition. Their lesson is to believe in the vision, however great or small, and to use it for creative potential to change lives. It's a very courageous type of energy with this archetype. A shadow might be misusing this visionary power to focus on worst-case scenarios. Characteristics might be breaking free of traditional expectations and rules, seeing things through a different lens, acting as an agent of change, paying attention to the guidance they get in dreams, looking to the future and see what it could be, not being stuck in what is, but actually being able to see and manifest the potential of what can be, it can become. And also, there are real challenges to envision new possibilities for humanity and bring the future into the present. And I'd like to think a lot of the people coming onto the planet right now are visionaries. They're here for this shift. They're here to help us become uh, more, just to see new possibilities as a human race.
0: I agree, and that's a beautiful thing. She says that visionaries need to spend more time alone and give their minds free reign to dream and create. They need to practice being optimistic about the future And they need to work on gathering the courage to really act on their visionary ideas. And she also says they need to practice some form of contemplation, whether that's meditation or journaling or just daydreaming, because that's where you channel your intuition. And they need to stay open to new ideas and hang out with other visionary people. But they need to work on buying into other people's doubts. So she says they've got to ignore the naysayers. They also need to um, work on not dwelling on the past, ignoring their intuition, giving in into fear, resisting change, and flirting with all these wonderful ideas without acting on any. And finally, she says they need to overcome trying to fit in. Because when you're a visionary, your job is not to fit in.
1: It's to hold the torch for other people to follow.
0: Yes. So these are just a few of the many, 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 many archetypes out there. I mean, there are so many others that we could have talked about, like the mother, the mediator, um, or the networker. There's, I mean, she mentions a few of them at the end of the book, the storyteller, the teacher, the warrior. So there's, there's many, many other archetypes, but these are just 10 that she mentioned in her book. And so we thought that would just be an easier way to organize this show. She does mention a website called archetypeme.com where you can take a quiz and discover your primary archetype, which I think is fun. And I'll post a link to that on our Facebook page. But I also think it's just wonderful to think about your life in terms of archetypes and start to reflect and notice patterns and behaviors that fit these archetypes and start to think, what does my archetype say about me? Where in my life am I resisting my archetype? And how in my life am I feeding my archetype? And I think these, the answers you seek to these questions will really help you as an awakened empath to really own who you are, which will help you set really natural boundaries so that you won't pick up on other people's emotions as much.
1: Right, And it will also give you more tolerance for people that might be coming from a different archetypical viewpoint than you may
0: have. Yes, exactly. So we hope you guys have enjoyed this show. would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a different archetype that you want to share, please feel free to do that. And if you have a question or story you want to share for our August Community Connection show, don't forget you can always email us enlightenedempaths at gmail.com or you can message us on Facebook at Enlightened Empaths. Have a great week, everyone. Don't forget, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.